chapter 6. And while you're doing that, there's a few announcements I have to make. The first is that a pastoral letter uh, went out about um, the candidate for the associate pastor position. Um, and there, I think there are some of you that did not get that letter. So if you did not get that letter um, via email, uh, our ruling, uh, ruling elder Albert Levingood will be up front. And you can give him your email, and he'll be sure um, to send that to you. Um, the second thing that I want to say is um, over the past several months, the Lord has blessed us with uh, a measure of growth. And we've had to put more people uh, downstairs in um, the fellowship hall. And I know the experience there is not great. And, and your session knows that as well. And so we are working feverishly uh, to change that. We just voted to... Uh, to bring in a new projector, and hopefully that will um, suffice in the meantime and buy us a little bit of time to figure out what, what we should do in terms of long term. So be in prayer for us, and um, as much as you can, uh, you know, we'll, we'll try to fill in um, the seats up here, and then for those that are sitting downstairs, we're working to change uh, the experience downstairs. Um, we, for those of you that are visiting um, or haven't been here, we are doing a series on the uh, Ten Commandments. Um, and one of the things that, uh, about God's word that I love and at the same time always brings me a bit of anxiety is I always end up preaching on things I'm not necessarily wanting to preach on. And uh, that's, that's certainly true with the Seventh Commandment. You're like, oh man, how am I going to do this? and integrated worship with uh, children here. But, but I will say this, this is, this is um, the majesty of God's word, that when God placed us in his word, he knew that we were going to be in mixed company, and he has still called uh, us to talk about this in a way that glorifies him ultimately. And so um, you could begin praying in your seats uh, that that happens. So, um, so uh, one other thing I want to say is there are three people that have influenced my thinking on this subject, and I want to I say you might hear echoes of them as, as I preach. One is C.S. Lewis, whose uh, two chapters in Mere Christianity on this subject are brilliant, and if you've never read it, I, I urge you to do so. Um, also to Reverend Timothy Keller and his books and works have been influential, and I had a professor in... Um, in seminary, Dr. Miles Van Pelt, who talked very openly and frankly about these issues and was a blessing to me. And so uh, their works are online. Like I said, you will hear echoes of them as I preach and teach, and I commend those works to you. Now, that's enough prolegomena. Let's look at God's word. Um, I'm going to be reading from First, uh, Chronicle, uh, First Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12 down to chapter 7 um, and verse number 5. Hear now the word of the Lord. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised, um, and God raised the Lord, and will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them 
members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were brought, bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman let um, her own husband. The husband should not give to his wife, should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over uh, her own body, and the husband does not likewise, uh, likewise the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Well, all flesh is as grass, and the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord shall endure forever. And this is the word that will be taught unto you. Amen and amen. Well, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Oh, Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. By the power of your Holy Spirit. And for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ. Open our minds now and our hearts that we might discern wonderful things from your word. Amen and amen. The title for the day's sermon is uh, Rock Solid and White Hot. And um, I did not uh, come up with this sermon title to be clever or to use as a gimmick or even for shock value. The reason why I came up with that title is because that title is an accurate description of the seventh commandment. You know, it's interesting to me that when we talk about marriage in general, we emphasize the rock solid. You know, we talk about how marriage should be between a man and a woman. And we talk about how uh, sexual intimacy belongs in marriage. We also talk about how marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. And by the way, all of that is good and right. And we should talk about those things. Uh, That's that's what we call rock solid. It's the thing that our marriages are built on. Solid theology found in God's word. As I heard somebody once said, um, think of marriage, your marriage, like a fireplace. A fireplace needs to be sturdy, needs to be built on something. But a fireplace was built for fire, right? That's the purpose of a fireplace. And so what is the seventh commandment calling us to? Well, the seventh commandment is saying this. Not only should we focus on the rock-solid nature of our marriage, 
but we should also focus on the white-hot nature of our marriage. In other words, the passion that God created in marriage. Now, if you're anything like me, you're deeply uncomfortable with that language. You know, I grew up in a church where uh, they only talked about the rock solid, never the white hot. And, and because of that, anytime I have to talk about issues like this from behind the pulpit, my hands start to sweat. And I get incredibly nervous because I was like, God, you know, I don't want to talk about this in a way that's flippant. Or I don't want to talk about it in a way that doesn't recognize the serious reality of what is being said here. But, but friends, listen to me. That's God's vision for our marriage. That's clear throughout scripture. In fact, if you go to Genesis chapter 1, uh, sorry, Genesis chapter 2, at the very end of Genesis chapter 2, listen to what God said. After, uh, you know, God makes Eve and brings Eve to Adam, and Adam sees her, and, and he breaks out in song. And then right after what God, uh, Moses, uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit, says these words, and the man and the wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That's a glorious passage in God's word because that's what God intended. One commentator put it like this, that there were absolutely no hindrances between the man and the woman. Uh, We often forget that God created sexual intimacy. And, And when the Bible talks about it, it doesn't talk about it merely in biological terms as if there's a textbook. The exact opposite. The first time it's mentioned in the Bible, it's mentioned as poetry. And the bulk of the times uh, elsewhere in the Song of Songs where it's mentioned the most, it's mentioned in poetry. Biblical poetry is designed to communicate that which is beautiful and glorious and transcendent. That's why it's in there. And if you do a Bible study on that, that's exactly what you will find. Some of you are looking at me like, Pastor Dennis, that's a Bible study I could get behind, finally. All the other ones you suggested before, you know, they were so-so. But this one, whatever I could do to get you in God's word, I'd do it. But friends, friends, listen to me. The, when you read the Bible, when you read the Bible, you will find that the Bible talks about sexual intimacy in a beautiful way. A beautiful way. And it's not just that this is a conservative doctrine. I, you know, I hear people say that, oh, you conservatives. You always talk like this. This isn't a conservative doctrine. In fact, if you read the Puritans, uh, you know, some of us love to read the Puritans. If you read the Puritans, they were scandalous. If a, if a Puritan stood up here to preach, you all would blush when it comes on this issue. Why is that? That, that was one of the most conservative uh, times in the church. Why were they so explicit? Why, why were they so rapturous in the way they talked about this? I'll tell you why. Because they understood what the Bible had to say about it. Most of us in this room get nervous. If we're Christian, we get nervous and a little ashamed talking about sexual intimacy. Why? Because the world has hijacked it. That's why. The world has taken it and they've cheapened it. They've commodified it. They've made it toxic. And worse than that, they've made it taboo, so taboo that that Christians don't even want to touch it. But I'm here to tell you today, we need to take it back. It belongs to our God. He created it. He gave it to us. And he said it was good. Not just that, very good. Very good. And when we take what God gives that is very good and treat it as radioactive, 
We do violence to the uh, message of scripture. Listen to me, friends. This is so important. The world wants it to be toxic. They want it to be taboo. And they want us not to have anything to do with it. Because when that happens, then the world drives the narrative of what it should be. In the passage that I just read you, that's exactly what Paul is doing. He's taking back the narrative. He's taking it from the world and putting it back where it ought to be. Into the hands of godly people who understand why God created sexual intimacy in marriage. And he's telling them both to celebrate it. Of course, keep it rock solid. Keep proper theology. But also celebrate what God has given you in the place that God is giving it to you. That's what this text teaches. Now, I'm going to go through it real quick. If you look at chapter 6, beginning at verse number 12, as I walk through this passage, I want you to see there are two views of sexual intimacy in this passage. One that's held by unbelievers and one that's held by believers. And both of those are wrong views. You see the first view in verse number 12 and 13. I'll call this one the promiscuous view. Uh, look at verse number 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful, Paul says. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the, for the stomach and the stomach for the food. Now, notice, notice here the first view, the promiscuous view. The promiscuous view is built on this reality that the, the sexual act is mainly biological. In the same way you have the urge to eat and you just go to your, to, to your uh, fridge and get a sandwich and eat it, it's the same way, right, with our sexuality. If, if you have the urge, then the Bible says fulfill it. Or, or in, in those contexts, they said that we ought to fulfill it. And what Paul is saying here at the very beginning is this is ridiculous. That, that's not what God intended. In fact, this view became so prevalent in, in the area that Paul lived, they actually turned it into a verb, and it meant to Corinthianize. It was a view of pure promiscuity. It's a view that's totally based on biology. And notice how Paul counteracts that view. Look at verse number 18. Paul says, the way in, I, way in which you and I deal with this view is to flee from it. Run from it. Why does Paul use the word flee? Think about it this way. Paul is saying this. This doctrine is a runaway departure from what Yahweh originally intended. And so what do we do? We run away from anything that God did not intend. We flee from it. The idea is to run from it, to, to cast it aside. And what are we casting aside? Notice he says sexual immorality. The word there is where we, uh, it's the word pornea, and it's where we get the word pornography. And it's not just one specific term. I know some use it as a term to understand sex outside of marriage. But in this particular passage, Paul is saying, flee anything, any kind of sexual contact that does not find its expression in marriage. In other words, flee anything that doesn't look like Eden. Run away from anything, no matter what it is. I'm not going to go into the details here today. But any and everything 
that, that does not find its expression in marriage. We should flee from it. Now, Paul goes on in verse number 18 and tells us why. Every sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Now, please don't miss this. This is a powerful point that Paul is making here. And it's, it's Genesis 2 reasoning, one flesh union reasoning. Here's what Paul is saying here by, by what he says at the end of verse uh, number 18. Paul is saying this. Let's say for a moment that you have the sin of gluttony and you eat a cheeseburger, multiple cheeseburgers, right? Paul is saying here, you know what? You don't become one flesh with the cheeseburger. Or let's say you have a drinking problem and you drink too much. Paul says, look, if you, if you drink too much or you do so much, uh, too much drugs, you do not become one flesh with drugs or alcohol. Paul says the one thing that you and I do that creates a one flesh union is when you and I are promiscuous and have sex outside of marriage. That's the plain teaching of scripture. And Paul says that is dangerous because it's a sin against your own bodies. It's a corruption of the flesh in a way that overeating or drinking too much or doing drugs isn't. Those are sins, Paul says, that are outside of the body, but these other sins touch your very nature. Why is that? Because sexual intimacy was designed to create a bond within marriage between two people. In fact, many scholars say this, and this is true, I, I believe this, that it is the binder that unites a husband and wife together more than anything else. Uh, the Reverend Tim Keller called it uh, holy cement. Why does he call it that? Because it, it joins two people together. That's the purpose of it. And, and when you go outside of marriage, C.S. Lewis rightly calls it a monstrosity because you take it away from all the other intimacy, acts of intimacy that's found in marriage. I have a friend that wrote a brilliant article uh, several years ago. And he talked, he said this, he said, look, we're so conditioned to think that the only form of intimacy we have is physical intimacy within marriage. But the Bible actually teaches more types of intimacy. The Bible actually teaches emotional intimacy in marriage, in which you cry with your spouse, and you speak with your spouse, and you, and you listen to them, or, or, or uh, you know, intellectual intimacy, where you all talk about things and find uh, various things in, uh, interesting. Or they talk about recreational intimacy, that you and your spouse go on walks together. There's all sorts of ways we can think about intimacy. But when you go outside of marriage, you isolate this one form of intimacy and leave all the others aside. And C.S. Lewis rightly calls it a monstrosity. Well, Paul calls it a monstrosity as well. He says, in fact, it's a sin against our very own bodies. Now, why is that the case? Well, in one sense, Paul already tells us. Because we are united to each other in marriage. You are supposed to be united with each other in marriage. But Paul's also said there's a bigger reason or a higher reason why we should not commit uh, sexual immorality. And notice with me in verse, in verse number 13, at the very end, Paul says this, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. 
And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Later on, he goes on to say that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Verse number 19, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. What is Paul saying here? This is one flesh union with Christ reasoning. This is union with Christ reasoning. Paul says even more, even more than our union within our marriage, even more consequential to us is union with Christ. Now, let's pause for a moment. What is union with Christ? I love what John Piper says on this. He says, union with Christ means to be connected to Christ in such a way that he becomes indispensable for every good we enjoy. Think about that for a moment. If you are a believer right in this room, you are more united with Christ than you are in this room, in your flesh, in your own bodies that you are so connected to Christ together that you joy that you are enjoying complete fellowship and oneness with Christ and Paul and here's what Paul is saying that's so profound at least in my mind that for many of us in this room right who who especially if you're single the world tells us that the highest form of pleasure is found in being with someone the, the highest form of joy is found with being someone. Paul is saying here, actually, that's not the case. Even more important than being married and connected in marriage is being connected to Jesus Christ in union with Christ. In fact, one of my favorite verses in the Bible is taken from Psalm 1611, where David says, you've shown me the pathways of life. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. And at your right hand, there's pleasures forevermore. Notice the wording that David used there, joy and pleasure. David is saying th this, that there's more joy and pleasure to be found in worshiping Christ than it is in being intimate with somebody else. Beloved, think of that. That's a powerful reality. That's a powerful reality. A and this is one of the reasons why um, Christians don't glorify the sexual union. We put it in its proper place because we understand that there's something more profound than that, and that is the worship of the living God. That's the point that David, uh, sorry, that Paul is making here. And it's, a, it, it's an incredibly powerful point and one that should lodge deeply in all of our hearts and minds. Now, something else that I want to say that's, that's uh, powerful. That's the, that's the view, that's the unbiblical view that he's dealing with here. Now I want to quickly look at the other view. And this view is found often in the church among believers. Notice with me in chapter 7 and verse number 1. Paul says this, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now pause there. Here's the view. The view is this. There are some people who say that sexual intimacy, you know, that's, that's not spiritual. That's, that's just fleshly. More important is that we pray. More important is that we, we do spiritual things. And so, Paul, why don't you agree with us? Agree that this stuff is fleshly. It shouldn't, shouldn't be talked about. shouldn't even be preached about anywhere. Right? That's the view. This, this over-spiritualized, almost Gnostic view of uh, sexual intimacy between a man and a woman. 
And what does Paul say in response to that? Paul says, actually, that's not the case. And Paul goes on to say that in marriage, that the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and vice versa. Now, let me pause here and say this. This text has been used unbiblically and sinfully to say that any time a husband uh, says he wants to be intimate with this wife, uh, she has to. That, that is not what this text is saying. In fact, this, te this text uh, is far from that. The point that Paul is making here is this, that the sexual union between a man and a woman is important in marriage. So important, Paul says, that even if you're doing a religious act like, like praying, right, uh, in verse number five, even if you're doing a religious act like praying and fasting, Paul says at some point you have to lay aside this religious act and take up the duty of, of making love to your spouse. That's what Paul is saying here. Why is that? Because it's an important aspect of marriage. In fact, it's something that goes back to the white heart that, that you and I should cultivate passion within our marriage. Let me give you an example from the Song of Songs. By the way, this is God's word. Listen to what God's word says on this. For love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. It flashes or flashes of fire. The very flame of God. You know what he's saying there? That within a marriage, we should be so passionate towards one another that it's likened to the very flame of God, the highest flame possible. Beloved, that's the vision for our marriage. That's in the Psalms. That's what the psalmist has called to. As husband and wife, we're not merely roommates. We're, we're not merely friends with benefits. The exact opposite. There should be this passion and this love that's found all the way through. By the way, why do you think people like, like love songs? Well, you know, nobody who's in love reads the, bio, um, um, you know, the, the, the medical journal to one another. Nobody does that. Nobody reads a textbook to one another if they're in love. What do we do? We write poetry towards one another. We, we sing songs and write each other's letters. Why is that? Because poetry is the medium for passion. All through scripture. Why do you think the psalmist um, writes songs about God? Because they want to be in love with God. Look, for too long we've looked at sexual intimacy between a man and a woman and think to ourselves, well, you know, that's just, that's just, that's just what, what we do. You know, if we want to have babies. No, 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 no. God has given us passages like this in the Song of Songs to remind us that it is our duty to create passion in our marriages. Now look, I'm not some naive pastor standing up here touting the beauty and, and wonders of the sexual union and don't realize that there are many people inside here that have felt the fallen aspect of what I'm talking about. There's some of you inside here today that have been sadly abused and taken advantage of. And, and, and that grieves the heart of God. Yes, I've spent the, the bulk of this sermon thus far reminding you of Eden, reminding you of what God has given to us 
as a blessing and a joy, but there's so many of you, that reality does not exist. There's a lot of pain and suffering there. And, th- and let me say this. The Holy Spirit is aware when he um, worked through Paul to write this text, he was aware of your abuse. He's not indifferent about that. And I want to tell you that it grieves the heart of God that you have been abused and that there has been a departure from what God originally intended. But, but let me tell you this. You can receive substantial healing as a result of the gospel. That even though this beautiful, wonderful thing that God created has been tarnished in your life, the Bible says that with Christ and the reminder of the gospel, there can be substantial healing. What do I mean by substantial healing? I I took that word from Francis Schaeffer, and here's what Francis Schaeffer says, that this side of eternity... While you might never forget what happened to you, God has the power to work in your life, to transcend what happened to you. And by the power of the Holy Spirit and union with Christ, that you can have healing in that area. It's not that you'll you'll forget. It's not that it would would never be painful. The memory will be painful. That's not what Schaefer is talking about. That's not what the Bible teaches. What the Bible teaches is that it's possible for you to still glorify God. God tells us a few things about you. You're still pure in the eyes of the Lord. And it's his job to present you faultless before the throne of grace. You're still pure in the eyes of the Lord. Next, the scripture tells us that that like a chief surgeon, God works in your heart. And deals with the pain. I, I remember going to a dear saint's bedside one time. And he had just had a few stints put in. And, and b- before he did, I visited him. And after he, uh, afterwards, I went to him. And I mean, it was night and day. And I said, hey, h- how are you doing? He said, Brother Dennis, I don't know what they did, but I feel so much better. Do you realize the same thing is true with the Spirit of God? If you've been abused and harmed in this area, the Holy Spirit can work in your, in your life to such a degree that you can feel the, the very presence of God changing your heart and mind to take what was once vile and make it beautiful again. What, what, if, what about you all that are sitting there that are single and saying, Pastor Dennis, I'm not married. I'm not married. Well, as I said before, Union with Christ is the answer. God has given us the beauty and pleasure of worship in order for us to stay connected with Christ. And by the way, if you are an unbeliever in here, you don't know Christ, let let me say this. The reason why I have mentioned over and over with union with Christ is because union with Christ is the fruit of our justification. When we are saved by God, we go into this relationship with God, and in that relationship, we find all that is fulfilling and wonderful and joyous. And so we don't have to strive after anything else, whether it's sex or food or, or drink, doesn't matter. We find our full fullness in him. But I'm also, again, not naive. I know that there are many of you inside here today, as Paul later on says in chapter 7, there's a burning. There is a burning. 
And you might say, well, Pastor Dennis, what do I do with this fire? Here's what the scripture says in Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for the blessed hope. Do you see what the writer of Titus is saying? That one thing about the grace of God, what is it designed to do? It is designed by God to train our hearts, to tell our hearts no, and to tell our hearts wait, and to remind us of the beauty of Scripture where we are told to wait for God's plan in this area for our life. Young people, I'm talking specifically to you. That's what the grace of God does. It trains your heart, but not only that, it gives you something even more to look forward to, and that's the blessed hope. Do you remember the story of, of Jesus? He's talking to the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and they came to him with this woman, and, and you know she's been married several times, and he looks, he looks at them and says, don't you know none of this will matter in heaven? Because you won't be married in heaven, which shows us this. The goal of sexual intimacy in marriage isn't about earthly pleasure. It's to point us to the heavenly reality of, of worship with God. That's where we will see it in its ultimate fullness. Yes, we do it out of obedience here. But brothers and sisters, it's primarily to remind us of the beauty and the joy and the pleasure we'll experience in heaven. That's what it's for. It's merely a signpost. And so what does Paul say in Titus chapter 2? If you're on fire, train yourself. That's what the grace of God has done. Now, very briefly, let me say this. I want to address the one who has fallen in this area multiple times. You know, um, uh, we read it today in our meditation, the story of John 8 of the woman caught in adultery. And, and what I find fascinating about that story is after everyone left, here's this woman standing exposed with a towel probably or a sheet wrapped around her, trembling. And Jesus looks at her and he says two things. He says, where, where are those that condemn you? Are they gone? Well, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that the, the, it was a beautiful display of grace by our Lord. That for the one who's sitting out there that have fallen multiple times in this area, our Lord says, I do not condemn you. I'm willing to offer you forgiveness. And I'm also willing to give you an opportunity at holiness. Go and sin no more. Live the life of purity that I have provided for you in the gospel. And notice, he didn't, get in, he didn't get it inverted. He didn't say, go and sin no more, and then I will not condemn you. Because that's not the priority of the gospel. The gospel is always indicative, then imperative. Not imperative, then indicative. Because she has been forgiven, and because she has been shown grace, then she can walk free. Free to not have to do that anymore. You know, Jesus didn't say, I know they made you do it. No, no, of course she did it. But the point of the narrative is to say this. 
Jesus offered her purity, he offered her salvation, and he offered her to be clean. And I believe with all my heart, she'll be in heaven one day, presented faultless before the throne of grace. Now, what is the big takeaway? The big takeaway is simply this. In a, in a writing, um, early Christian writing called the Letter of Dionysus, um, a, an early Christian apologist wrote in chapter, five, uh, chapter six, at the s- uh, paragraph, second paragraph, the very last sentence, he made this point. He said, Christians are, are godly people. They share their meals, but not their wives. Uh, to use something I heard uh, Reverend Keller said, they were promiscuous with their goods and, and their money, but not with their bodies. And that's my exhortation to all of us inside here. Let us be promiscuous with our money. Let us be promiscuous with, with our time. But let us not be promiscuous with our bodies. Because they belong to the Lord. They're in union with the Lord. And if we're married, they're in union with our spouse. Let us pray. Father, uh, these are, are difficult things for us to navigate. But I think your word is abundantly clear. Lord, um, our world has, has hijacked this so much that for many of us, this is deeply uncomfortable to hear and to process. And, and I pray for us, for all of us. Lord, you're good to us. And you, you gave this wonderful thing as a gift. Help us to steward it well. Uh, may, may your words lodge deep in our hearts. I pray in Jesus' name.